If you love to read books, chances are you love to talk about them too. But have you ever wondered about whether your favorite celebrities or public figures love to read as well? If you might share a favorite book or preferred genre with them? Well, I sure have. So I'm on a mission to find book lovers, book nerds, if you will, in unexpected places. In this interview series, I'll be talking with people you recognize, but don't necessarily associate with books, musicians, actors and actresses, athletes, and more. We will be discussing all of their current projects you want to hear about, of course, but we will also be digging into their unique reading and writing lives. In this interview, I chat with screenwriter Jeff Arch, whose debut novel, Attachments, is out May 11th. Listen on to hear us discuss his most well-known screenplay, Sleepless in Seattle, his new novel, some fantastic writing tips, books he has loved, and much more. All right, folks. Um, so today I have screenwriter and now book author Jeff Arch with me. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you. My goodness. Thank you. So I'm going to get my little fangirl moment out of the way right up front here and, and let folks listening know that if they don't recognize your name, they probably know who you are as a screenwriter um, for writing Sleepless in Seattle, if not other films. So obviously I'm a huge fan and you kind of, I think, ruined um, love, ideas of love for women across the world <laughs> with this big grandiose <laughs> plot. So I have you to blame for that. Um, <laughs> but you know, uh, I, I wouldn't have written that movie if people would have bought some of my earlier ones, but I was really angry. So I wanted to put the audience through some torture. Oh, I mean that in the best way because we keep going back for more and more of it. Um, and, and I was looking back and we're getting pretty close to like 30 years out from when the film came out. So you were probably writing it about this time 30 years ago, right? I wrote it um, exactly now. I mean, I, fin I wrote the first draft in um, February and March of 1990. Yeah. So I remember my first draft was dated April 8th. And uh, so I sent it to some people and then I did a little work on it. And then I think a week or so, two weeks later, that was the final draft. And I gotta tell you, between mid-April, which is exactly now, so how long does Memorial Day feel to you? How far away does Memorial Day, even in pandemic time? I mean, it, it's coming up, right? Yeah. But it's sold Memorial Day weekend. Wow. But, so, which is unbelievably rapid. Yeah. But at the time, it felt, I didn't know it was gonna sell Memorial Day. So every single day after that one went in, Unlike every other thing I've ever submitted, I put I put everything into this one. This was this was the end of the line if this didn't work. And uh, so I think maybe there's some of that desperation and that panic and that yearning kind of got into the script, um, you know, subliminally, just because that's what I was going through. But it seemed like forever. Every day seemed like months, just waiting to waiting to hear. And you know, I had a good agent, so they don't tell you every time somebody rejects it, and they don't really tell you why, but the, the common reason why was, first of all, it's such a crazy idea and, uh, you know, a love story where the people don't meet. But second, we've come a long way since 1990. And the idea of a guy talking to a psychologist was really hard to get people to um, accept back then. So we had to do all this, you know, mincing around. And, and Tom Hanks um, did have a problem with it and got to thank Nora Ephron because she got him in a hotel room and they worked some stuff out and uh you know he had just his career he had done a bunch of those the silly movies you know Turner and Hooch and stuff and and um then he was gone for a little bit he switched agencies and he came back with that incredible part in a league of their own mm -hmm. and so he was on the way back it wasn't a lead it was a lead but it wasn't it was a giant ensemble so his next thing was really important and he didn't want to come off for reasons anybody can understand looking soft or, uh, and he and Nora worked it out and uh, thank God, because who else could, who else can anybody picture in that role, but Tom now. No, Tom, Tom and Meg both. And that's gotta be incredible. I mean, that's, it sounds like the dream to me. This is your first work that sold it even though it didn't feel like it that's incredibly quick and then it turns into this this phenomenon that 30 years later we're all talking about I, I just can't imagine what that was like that's incredible well you know I was 35 when I wrote it I had a 
daughter who had just turned five during the process, a son who was six months old. I had sold my business. I had thrown everything I had into this. It was really personal, even though none of the stuff really happened to me, just the openness that I wrote it with. It was, this wouldn't matter. You know, this wasn't just, it wasn't just business. This was everything. So um, it did seem quick. And then when it sold, it got moving really quickly. I re, you know, what the public doesn't know, the minute you sell it, then the rewriting begins, even though you've rewritten it a million times. So the rewrite started. And um, the funny thing is, Beth, I, I was so nowhere when I wrote this. I was beyond nowhere because I had already tried my way in show business and gotten no, and you know, gotten skunked. Nothing was selling. It was getting kind of old now. And you know, um, I had a business. I was teaching karate and owned a karate school. And uh, I, I, I knew I kind of like Annie. That was an okay life. That was a life you can explain to anybody. Okay, I've got a young family. I'm teaching a karate school. One was 15 minutes away. One was five minutes away. This is okay let's do this. You know, it's a small potatoes world. I'm helping families one by one. Uh, there were a lot of kids in that area whose fathers were, um, were in the DC, Virginia DC area. So there's a lot of military presence and a lot of kids have been moved around a lot. And a lot of them, their fathers were, um, you know, absent because they were overseas or doing some posting somewhere. So I saw a lot of young families without that male role model. And then I, I watched enough movies to know that once the male role model comes home, it upsets the balance of the family all over again because here he comes and whatever system was in place. And then just as soon as they got that together, he leaves. So I understood the chaos of that kind of family. And, you know, one by one, you would not believe um, the work. It was almost like a ministry, uh, just helping these guys stay together and providing a solid consistent male role model that kids could look boys and girls could look up to uh and then college kids and high school kids were my my favorite but um something was knocking on my door inside that just said it's such an error even today i almost it's hard to it just said you were meant for more man mm -hmm. uh i did not create you for this i mean you're good at it and go ahead and do it but i did not create you for this and and that started nagging away at me. So I realized I got to start to write again. And I, I sold that business, gave myself a year to write three pictures. I, I gave myself a three movie deal and didn't even consider what was going to happen if one of those didn't sell. And Sleepless was the second of those. And um, that's why I was extra nervous because I only had one more in me. I only had one, you know, it was, I now had six, seven months left to do it to fulfill out my year. Uh, and I, you know, it just had that sense of, if you don't want this, I don't know, I don't know what I've got, you know, and, and I knew that if you pulled it off, you could tell a love story where the people don't meet. That was the, that was the thing that it made me nervous, but it also made me calm. I knew that if you pull it off, you can get the audience to play Cupid and you will drive them crazy because that feeling, um, did you watch Fleabag, that series? Uh-huh. So you knew she was going to make a mistake. You knew she was going to make the wrong decision, you know, right. and you watched it and you just constantly watch this woman make one bad decision after another. And she knew she was making bad decisions. The same kind of thing only extended out. You knew that this guy is about to make a bad decision. He's going to marry this new woman that came into his life. And you knew she was going to make a bad decision. She's going to marry this guy. And in my original scripts, there was really nothing wrong with the woman that Tom met. And there was really nothing wrong with the man that Meg was already with. The, the stupid laugh and the sneezing wasn't really mine. It, it worked. It got a lot of laughs and, and you know, it worked. But my point was um, not that there's anything wrong with these people, but there's somebody more right. And, and we know who it is and you don't. So don't make that mistake. Don't go away for a weekend with her. Don't get in her clutches because that's going to make you, you're never going to get to that building. So just that sense of destiny, you know, I felt I was headed for a destiny and, and I didn't intellectually sit down there and say, okay, I'm going to create a character. This is about destiny. I had no idea what it was about. I just knew once I got the idea, I had 120 pages to get to, to that, to that empire state building and see what would happen. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> once that structure was laid down, um, I had no idea how I was gonna get there. And same thing with the book. I just trusted the characters. We're all in this together. 
you guys know who you are and what you want. I know where I need to get. So let's all cooperate. It's a strange process. Yeah. I, I love that. And I see the the connection now. I mean, in the in the film, you're you're a big dreamer, it sounds like. I mean, there's like a big dream oh, yeah. with with people who don't meet and you took this huge leap to do something you wanted to do and went all in on it. Um, and now you've got your first novel coming out, which I think is a good transition, Attachments, um, which has been a dream, it sounds like, for a while to, to get a book out into the world. Um, how about you tell folks that are listening, because when they're listening to this, they may not have read the book yet, um, just a little bit about the premise and, and what Attachments is about. Well, um, on the surface, it's about three kids that go to a boarding school together, and uh, they come under the influence of the teacher that we all dream about and fantasize about, that just always has the right thing to say, that really cares about us, that sees inside us, that doesn't judge, that knows we got a long road ahead. Um, and two of the characters, Goody and Laura, are already in a relationship when uh, Pick, the third character, joins, comes to school and he becomes Goody's roommate. And he and Laura, he starts falling for Laura without knowing that Goody is his, her boyfriend. So he does not know he's starting to get the hots for his best friend's girl. Uh, he comes from a crime family. So you'd think his morals might not matter so much, but he's actually very highly, uh, got very high morals and would never make a move on his best friend's girl. But for the entire course of the story, these two people are falling in love. <clears throat> and uh, Goody is the last person in the world that anybody would want to hurt. <clears throat> and you know that the this is good, that there's, there's a betrayal involved. So something terrible happens when they're in school and they go separate ways, except Goody, uh, Pick and Laura get married and Goody goes off. We never know where he's gone. He's, he's disappeared for most of the book. And the teacher, 18 years after having these kids as students, he has a stroke in his office and he calls out the two last names of Goody and Pick. And nobody really knows why. And the teacher's got an 18 year old son who never heard of these people before. And so while they have to be collected and brought back to the school because there's no way they're going to say no to this teacher's request, uh, the confrontation that they didn't get to have almost 20 years ago now has to happen. So it's a chickens coming home to roost story. We really we can never hide from our past. We can never really run away from our mistakes. You know, and the thing is, you can't run away from your good choices either. It just never occurs to you because they were good choices. You know? <laughs> I wish I had bought this wonderful house. You know, that never happens. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I married the right girl. You know, that doesn't happen. We don't regret doing the right thing. Um, but these people are now in their mid thirties and they're carrying, they're good people. And they're carrying the one bad thing they did all this time. And they can't be, they need to get released from it. And somehow in the teacher's mind, one of his motives as he's going down into a stroke and calling their names, he's got another very big motive that involves a spoiler. Uh, but one of his things is that out of love for these guys, they've got to clean up their act. They cannot go forward. It's time for everybody to just mend fences if they can. Mm. And so part of the gathering of all, all these people is getting to mend fences. Um, the shortest thing I can say after I said that whole long thing um, <laughs> really kind of has not, not much to do with the story itself, but you know, someone said, you know, give me in one sentence, why I should read the book or who this is for. And at the time I didn't have time to think about it. I had to do it right away, but it's pretty much, if you've ever stood there and looked in a mirror and said, what the hell has happened in my life? And what am I supposed to do now? This is your book because um, they're all going through that. They all get to a point. And I think a lot of us do, Beth. I mean, I sure, I sure did in my mid-30s. I wrote Sleepless in my mid-30s because I did not like where my life was going. <laughs> and I had that moment. And then I said, where do you want it to go? You know, forget what's possible. Forget what's impossible. I, I've been 11 years of being told what's impossible. You're not breaking into the movie business, buddy. I'm, do we need to tell you again? <laughs> you know, do we need to tell you again? This is not going to happen. I just believe differently. And, and now we're back in sleepless. That's, that's what the little kid reset represent. I don't, I don't know. Tell me about reality, man. I want to believe what I want to believe. And I want to believe that things come true. And 
it's, these were both happening at the same time. I just wrote Sleepless first. I actually got the idea for the for attachments um, two years before I thought of Sleepless. When did you actually start writing? Because I'd read that somewhere that there was a big oh my God. gap this between. Thing, <laughs> I got to tell you, when I was in sixth grade, I had a, one of my teachers said something. We were talking about a, a book that we were supposed to read. And the teacher said that the novel, the author took 11 years to write the book. And I was only 11 years old. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, novels, they're out. That's out. I'm, I'm not doing anything that takes 11 years. And then, you know, you'd hear about a scientist that had some breakthrough, you know, they figured out how to do the curve and the bobby pin different. And that took 20 years. I just got fascinated at things that were, it always picked, you know, picked my ears up when I would hear that something scientist or some author or artist took years and years and years to create something. And I said, well, that's not for me. <laughs> uh, so I get this idea in 1988 and it's now 2021. That's two years longer than it took to build the Washington Monument. Uh, I, I looked that up last night. It took 30 years to build the Washington Monument and 32 years, 33 now for this book to go from idea to this conversation we're having right now. Um, but it's not all I did for 32 years. I mean, I had a whole career and I raised a family and had another family and you know there were other jobs and everything. But I got the idea in 1988 when I, on a whim, drove up to a school, a boarding school that I went to for two years. And there was a teacher very much like the main character, Henry Griffin. <clears throat> and just on a whim, uh, I decided to see if he was there still. I didn't call, there was no email at the time. I just drove up, it's like a two hour drive. And asked around and knocked on a door where somebody said that he lived and I spent the day with him as an adult. And the funny thing is, I was at the age then that he was at when he was our teacher. Mm -hmm. And, but you know, when you're a kid, I mean, it, it turns, our teachers, you guess we're probably 24 and the oldest were, you know, 60s. But, but even a 24 year old teacher, you think is a serious grown up when you're 16. Mm -hmm. And now, <laughs> I wonder why did we give so much power to all these 20 year olds? <laughs> but, but anyway, um, I asked him about, excuse me, I asked him about some things that had happened that we wouldn't have been let in on because they were pretty big things. Um, some incidents that happened at the time, they were kind of rumored, you know, how something can spread around a school or a community and then you find out the truth. And, and he, he told me the truth about the story. That story didn't make it into the final draft of the book, but the dynamic did. Um, there was a kid at that school whose um, father was a serious mob member. And uh, I wasn't, I mean, I'm not saying I wasn't friends with the kid because of that. The kid was a day student, he was in a different grade and we just, you know, we didn't hang out. Uh, but there was an incident between the two of them that brought the guy's father in who was a big, deal to the teacher and they had to sit down and, and so this guy at 32 years old has got to negotiate a piece between a gym teacher and a mob boss and he described that scene to me <clears throat> and also he told me about a kid that was there before I was he said a Jewish kid who went off to the mountains in India you know and he and he rolled his eyes with that grown-up way that you know in my childhood that was the very beginning of people discovering transcendental meditation. Uh, you know, the Beatles went to India, so suddenly a lot of a lot of smart kids who weren't getting their curiosity met by the religions they were in. And mostly, I, I know mostly Jewish because every time a Jewish kid dropped his college and went to India, you know, everybody grieved all the parents. And so I sort of inherited this both sides they're like how cool would that be but also none of the grown-ups in my life are approving of this and um they're threatened by it so i sort of caught you know the vibe of that threat so i drove back down thinking about uh, a, a spiritual kid and um a wise ass kid whose father was a mob guy being best friends and you know definitely two sides of the coin i seem to do that a lot in a lot of my work is that i'll have two guys and one of them is pretty pretty cerebral and, you know, pretty open about his vulnerabilities and everything. Uh, and the other guy's just a cynical wise ass. And so it's, it's really like Lennon and McCartney. As soon as one's too sweet, the sour comes in. 
And as soon as one's too sour and bitter, in comes all that innocence and sweetness. So I've always had those two guys inside me. Um, I was writing movies then. So I started as a movie, didn't get anywhere, put it away. Um, after I wrote Sleepless, that was the next thing I wrote. And uh, I wrote it as a movie. And it had the same core things in it, but it was not the same story at all. It did have the two kids. It did have a betrayal. It did have the teacher. And it had those basic things. But it also took place in two different time frames. And the trouble then was uh, actors didn't want to play in half of I mean, I, I'm not bragging. I mean, sitting across from Alec Baldwin at the, at the Red October phase of his career, you know, he was, he had just turned down Jack Ryan for the series that, that Harrison Ford picked up. Uh, and he was trying to convince everybody that was a good idea. <laughs> because, um, and he just looked at me in the face and said, who wants to be in half a movie? He loved the part. He was going to play pick. He loved the part. And he said, who wants to be in half a movie? So I started getting things like that. And um, we, I pulled it. I just said, forget it. I don't, you know, we'll, we'll sit on this for a while and think about stuff. Uh, I went on with life. In 98, I looked at, I came upon the script again. I said, you know, I think the problem here was that, thank God it didn't sell as a movie because it's supposed to be a book. And it's just, your work will tell you that. I didn't set out to write a novel. I set out to write a movie. When the movie didn't work and refused to work, I asked a different question. Is it trying to tell me something? It wanted to be a book. Then two things happened. The first one was, I remembered that teacher who said it's gonna take 11 years and I didn't wanna do that. Um, so I went, well, this is great because I already have the outline for a book. You know, my, my fear of, I didn't know any novelists at the time. And so my fear was gonna be that I'm gonna get into this thing and not know how to get out. But knowing I already had an outline, I had already figured out the story. I had already gone from beginning to end. Uh, and then this, so I started it that way. I had no idea what was gonna happen. The second thing was a kid in high school wrote a short story. Um, now we're talking about 1971. Um, he wrote a short story and I read it and it had chapter headings with each character name. And I thought that is so cool. So the two things came together. I wanna to write this as a book. I already have an outline. And I already have a way to do it because I've been waiting since 1971 to have an excuse to try this technique out. That's how attachments happen. Um, I, I, there were six characters that have voices in it that tell the story. And the first draft was like 600 pages because I went inside wow. everybody. You, you know how sometimes it goes in italics now when it goes into the past. At the time, I was actually going inside people's heads and, and like right in this conversation, if you're thinking, you know what, I, I wonder why it doesn't have that kitchen light on back there while we're talking. That would be an italic. So everybody's inner thoughts were going on, people remembering things when they saw them, everything was saying, it was just this giant um, uh, collection that I, in it, had to find out what's the real story. What, and and uh, I would let the characters tell it. All I knew was that at the end, they're all gonna be in the same room and one of them is gonna go into the teacher's hospital room. I didn't know at the beginning whether he was going to live or die. I'm not going to say now. You've read it. But uh, then I just sort of let them guide me. And so that 19, May 1998, May 2nd is when I started it. I think I finished the first draft in a year, but I'm still working on other stuff. I just went on this furious burst. I wrote three or 400 pages right away. Then I had a movie. Then I would get a little time in it. Then I'd have another movie and definitely not complaining. Um, because I kept getting movie jobs and four other movies besides Sleepless got made. Although I wrote probably 20 scripts and uh, looking back now, had those 20, had I put my heart and soul and time into 20 novels instead of 20 scripts, a few of them might've been made anyway. But, you know, I didn't know that at the time. I was there to write movies. I love the discipline of it. I love the shortcut um, way that you have to write movies and uh, learning to write in imagery uh, was some of the best possible training I could have had for writing a novel because you got a crisp, you got a, you know, got a lot of my education from the rock and roll poets, the folk singer poets, you know, Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell. And they would have to crunch a phrase down into just a couple words, what might take paragraphs to describe. And so I sort of learned the rhythm of that. 
And it was great training. The economy and the discipline that you get from screenwriting was tremendous training when it came to a novel. But the freedom at first, I had a guy throw a football to his best friend in that very first draft. Mm -hmm. He throws the ball. It was four pages later when the guy caught it. And I was just, I'm just going off, you know, into his head and backstory and future and what he's thinking of and what the friend was doing. And I was having a blast. And then, you know, I got to, okay, you can't, but in a movie version of that, the guy would have thrown the ball, the guy would have caught the ball, they would have cut to another scene. And uh, so just to have that freedom uh, to go anywhere you wanted before you start saying, okay, now bring it back. That was intense. I, I love hearing about all of that, what goes on in, in a writer's mind as they're writing. And, and like you've mentioned, um, two things I really liked about the book were the changing perspectives, the different voices that you get from the characters. Um, and then that's kind of mashed together with uh, the different timelines because you get the present in the book from, from the characters as well as them flashing back. So when you had this big 600 pages that you started with of the book. I'm curious when you were writing through, did you just write through like you're saying the way the book is and you did the flashbacks as they came up and that sort of thing? Or did you think about this as building the past and building the present separately and kind of piecing it together? I think what I did was um, they weren't, the flashbacks were never in order. And the first people that read the book said, man, I'm just so, I'm just so damn confused. And uh, even though it worked for me, I realized there's certain things I have to do. Only certain people can have, only you can only go into the thoughts of certain people. Only certain ones can have flashbacks and, and the flashbacks have to be chronological. Uh, and to some degree they are. And, and in one case, something is described and then later a guy has a memory of the thing that was described. There's a, there's a scene you know, where he, the kid misses a bus on the way back from a weekend home because there's a storm, an ice storm in Pittsburgh. That storm is tracked through the whole thing until that ends up being the rainstorm when he runs away that morning. But that storm comes to Pittsburgh, comes from Pittsburgh up to Wilkes-Barre and, and, and just deluges this place. But there's thunder far away and then there's twitching in the windows and then, then a downpour. I realized when I looked back and read it that the scene about this pits about the storm in Pittsburgh has a scene where the storm happens, but it doesn't matter because it's all woven in. And certainly anybody reading the book a second time, which I, I hope people do just for the fun of it, um, because the things you know after all the spoilers, mm -hmm. maybe every book's like this, but once you know all the spoilers and you go back, I'm reading a really good book now for the second time just because I, I had so much fun the first time and now I want to go back and see how he did it without the wondering what's going to happen part. So I didn't have so much of a structure in mind. I really just sort of let these characters, uh, oh, and, and Chip didn't exist in those 600 pages. Did he exist? At some point I realized this, these people should probably have a kid. Huh. So, and at some point, you know, then all these things got tied in, but my original idea did not involve him did not involve a, a kid that they had. It did not involve that whole central thing that, that drives the secret. So the editing part was, it was really just like, again, finding that statue inside the marble. And, and again, from a screenwriting discipline, you can only go from things that happen to things that happen. So what happens next is the question that every writer needs to get every reader to ask, or you're going to put down the book. If you, you know, I, I teach writers, so I, I speak at things, and that's what I tell them. You got one job, and that is to get a complete stranger to ask what happens next. And your whole career can be learning how to do that job. But one of the ways that I keep the reader asking what happens next is because I never knew what was going to happen next. And the characters came alive enough where they'd tell me. So when it was time for another chapter, it was like I had this image of a basketball coach and you have all your players on the bench. And then you say, who's ready to come in? And, you know, if you just played, you can't. So nobody could get two chapters in a row was my only rule. And I wanted them to be each person to be separated by at least two or three chapters. There's one case where it goes from one to another and then back to that one but there's that's the only time so okay 
each character would sort of volunteer to get the next chapter. And it just seemed to be the right choice. And I would like follow them through the story. Uh, I know there are authors and writers who put everything on index cards and then they got that whole wall figured out and they can't start until they've done that. And that's one approach. And then there are the people that say, I don't want to know anything. And they just write, and then the whole thing is a discovery process for them. And, and both, you know, both are both work, you know, there's best-selling blockbusters that do the index card thing. And there's best-selling blockbusters that have no idea what's going on until it's finished. I'm the Goldilocks thing. I pick the middle way. So I want to know a couple things and I want to let the characters figure out the rest. And I cannot explain this process, but uh, there were times when I was, I was offered some pretty lucrative stuff if I would just do certain things to the book. Hmm. And uh, um, there were editors at some pretty big houses that their suggestions, they wanted, it was a different book. Like I would say, help me make this same book better. But all their suggestions and all their, the money they were dangling, you know, well, one of them said, I want you to have it take place at a college. You know, and I didn't agree. But I thought, you know, I'm not in this alone. So I, tr I tried a couple of chapters with characters in a college. They, I'm, I'm sitting here like they exist. They just wouldn't do it. And there's so many things I just couldn't get these characters to do that I just surrendered. And it's kind of like parenting that, you know, when your kid's a certain way, I mean, you got to teach them the basics, but you can't teach a kid who doesn't love sports to love sports. They just came in not loving sports. So it was like editors saying that, excuse me, that equivalent. Um, so I would just know where the characters were last, what were they involved in, and what would be the next activity that they would do towards the thing that they're trying to get for. So, and they would come up with it. I didn't even know when, uh, in the very beginning, this is not a spoiler, um, Pick and Laura as a 35-year-old couple now have lost a child. And I didn't know they lost a child. I was writing a breakfast scene and the whole scene is he comes through when she's giving breakfast to her kid, to their kids. And it turns out one of them died, uh, a twin. One of the twins died. And I didn't know that. And I'm just going, holy crap, man, you guys lost a kid. <laughs> and then I had, so now when it comes to Laura's next chapter, what's she going through? So how do you make sandwiches for the two kids you have left when you have one that died? So they sort of told me, they wrote it for me. I, I was just there. And, and a lot of people will tell you that painters, musicians, any kind of artist will tell you um, when you're not there, you got to learn how to be there so much that you're not, <clears throat> that you disappear. And fortunately, these characters wanted nothing to do with me, in my opinions. You know, uh, they, they wanted me to guide them to where they needed to go. And they did agree at some point, yes, yes, Jeff, we'll all be in a hospital room at the end of the story, but get, let us get there ourselves. And, you know, again, I've had enough kids. I had my own two, and then I raised four more of my second marriage. And um, you got to meet them where they are. So I, I do that with my characters. I respect them enough. I, I meet them where they are. I don't try and, and they're a part of your personality, obviously. You know, I'm not a mob boss, you know, but Carmine, spoke words that I had, you know, and I actually had a friend who, who read an earlier draft who knew the guy that I was talking about, who knew a guy who was like Carmine and, you know, um, a mob, possible mob boss who owned a restaurant that was possibly cover or maybe just a restaurant and nobody really knew. And my friend said when he read it, he felt like he was with that guy. And I don't know if I know, well, I know people like Pick and Goody and Laura because, you know, they're all 35-year-old, you know, kids. And so was I. I say mm -hmm. kids now. I did not feel like a kid at 35. <laughs> I felt like I was about 700 when I was 35. And now I feel like I'm about four. <laughs> I think that's all really fascinating to hear. And for folks listening, especially if they're writers, too, I mean, it's always, it's just always really interesting to hear the thought process. And I have such a hard time trying to wrap my head around how you wrote just because of the, the structure of the book and the back and forth. And um, I'm a much more linear 
thinker. I would be the person that has like the note cards and let's rearrange them and like make all the pieces fit together. Um, but I, I love hearing that kind of um, that kind of flow that you had and how you're able to just kind of jump from voice to voice and time and how it came to you. It might have come out of, I think the same thing happened with Sleepless. What looked like what courage or bravery or whatever was just me getting into trouble. So <laughs> with Sleepless, if I'm in a Seattle scene and I'm getting into trouble and this has got Anna where to go, I said, okay, let's cut to Annie. You know, it's when I teach, I stress craft to any writers out there. It's all about the craft. You, you know, <clears throat> If I'd been making tables for 45 years, I'd be pretty good at making tables right now. But my first tables would have been pretty, you know, mm. rough. So the craft sets the table for the art. And so what I would do is I'd say to them, look, you guys know if it's about three people who are separated, that they're going to have to come back. <laughs> and you know that there's going to be a scene where we meet Goody again for the first time. And you know that there's going to be a scene where Pick and Goody are together again for the first time after they haven't seen each other in 18 years after one of them betrayed the other. And I knew those things were coming up and then they came when they came and, and how, are you, how are you gonna do this? So technically I would know, okay, there's so much information to get out, but I hate exposition. So I don't want anybody to know exposition is happening. I, I hate it. I hate it when you have to stop the story to tell the story. Mm -hmm. So, um, but there's so much you need to know just to know what's going on. Like, so I would find ways to do that. So a conference, a dialogue scene, to finish that scene would take maybe five more pages of dialogue and they wouldn't be as exciting as the ones I already had. So I would say, okay, now it's time to just crunch that down into description. They would say, he told her this and this and this and this and this, and then it would go back to dialogue because you can't just have endless, endless dialogue scenes. So it's sort of knowing, okay, it's time for a flashback or when do you do that first one? So the first one, I think you're 30 or 40 pages in. And the reason for that is I wanted you to get it. It's hard enough. You're meeting all these characters one after the other and like what's going on? How are they connected? So I didn't want to throw one more element. But when the time came for the flashback, I had no idea what was going to happen. So let's, 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 go to, let's go to the first night they met, you know, and that's how it happened. And, and uh, well, how'd they meet? Well, they end up thrown into a dorm room together. Okay, well, what, what happened about that? So... The craft, I keep saying this, you know, to the cows, the craft sets the table for the art. So first you set everything up. It's like a playground. You build the playground and then you get out of the way and you stand outside the fence. You're ready to come in if you need it. But, and then the kids go in and you play and you watch them. You watch how they inhabit this space you made for them. And sometimes they say, this thing, this dinosaur doesn't work here. Get rid of it. Um, and then put a, put something else there. So I think, I have, you know, kind of respect I have for these characters. I think it, I think it shows, uh, it, you know, I, I, one thing I wrote had a villain in it and that was a Disney movie called Iron Will, which I inherited and I inherited the villain. Uh, I don't do villains and, and I just can't have mean people who are trying to do cruel things in my head. So I think everybody and everything I've written is a nice person. Um, but they just trip over themselves. They don't need somebody out there to make their life hard. They just trip over themselves or they bump into each other or I want this, but if it's going to cost you something, I don't want it, but I really do want it. And so, how, you know, people are testing their moral and ethical lines. I never wanted to write something, a book or a movie or anything where you forgot it as soon as you got to the car. So if these people have been with me for this long, I want them to be with the audience for at least that long. Um, again, not out of revenge and torture the way it was with Sleepless. It really is a gift and an act of love because there's, you know, there is a way through our problems. Yeah. And um, that's what this book, you know, is doing. It's showing you there is a way through your problems. Running from them is not the way. Fighting them is not the way. You can't fight your problems, you know, and you can't run from them. There has to be a middle way. There has to be a third way. And again, I never set out to do that. It's just what happens when these people who loved each other, something terrible happened 18 years go by, there's an elephant in the room that whole time, and now the elephant's back. What'll they do? And I didn't know. So I was just as much there for the discovery as, uh, as, as any reader, I hope, will be. Mm -hmm.
I think folks will be excited to see what they do to resolve the issue. I hope. I think they will like your characters. Um, I appreciate you sharing all the craft behind writing them. And I think you succeeded extremely well in making them very real and okay. looking at that human nature. Like you said, there's not a villain, but they're tackling very real things that I think people can relate to in their lives. So I think for that aspect, um, I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but I see it as a very character driven book, which I always like because the writing is examining kind of the things that we face in our own lives or in ourselves. And I think there's a lot of that reflected in your characters and attachments. So I think folks will really enjoy that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to do the, you know, <laughs> international jets and spies or, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to do it. Um, plot driven stories. Uh, I, 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 it's, I hear, I hear dialogue in my head when I hear the characters talking to each other, I know I've got it started. And so it, there's two approaches. There is come up with the story and then find the characters to tell it or come up with the characters and let them tell their story. And uh, that's what I did in this. I mean, it's, it, again, it wasn't a, the only conscious choice I made was to do that thing with the alternating chapters because I loved it when this, and the funny thing is I, the high school student I got that technique from, I called him recently. Um, thanks to Facebook, we're back in touch, but you know, it had been, it had been years and years. And you know, we were good friends in school. So I called him up and I said, hey man, do you remember this story you wrote back in high school? And he said, yeah. And, and, and I said, but the older, well, I want you to know I stole that. And I've been waiting my whole life to figure out how to use that technique because I liked it so much. And he said, don't worry about it. I stole it from Faulkner. So, you know, then my next question was who did Faulkner steal it from? Because mm -hmm. he certainly wasn't the first. Um, okay, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask you about your personal like reading life and interests. Um, and I'm always curious for folks to know, like, have you been a lifelong reader? Is that something you've always enjoyed doing? Did you pick that up later in life? I, I've, I've been a lifelong reader. I don't think you can underline it a bunch of times, but I've been reading books my whole life. Yeah. I'm the kind that... Uh, I would have read a lot more books if I didn't have this thing where I read the same one over and over and over again. So there probably were four books in my childhood that I just read over and over and over again at the expense of several other books, you know, probably dozens of other books. But when I look at those books now, I, I realize, you know, why I picked them and why, I, first of all, I read them over and over again because the same reason I watch a lot of TV shows over and over again, because, because when you don't have the what happens next thing, when you don't have to worry about how this, you know, that's all settled, you can really dig in and it becomes a comfort food. So I was, if I was reading a book for the fifth or sixth time, I was in a known world, you know, and then I didn't have to risk being in a, you know, some other world in another book. I'm really weird that way. Um, but I read all through my childhood. I read, um, I read a book in eighth grade by William Goldman, who ended up obviously, you know, writing Princess Bride and all the President's Men and as a script. And um, the book was called No Way to Treat a Lady. <laughs> and it was, uh, I think the plot was, it was a serial killer who was teasing the cop that was trying to solve the case. And, you know, obviously the serial killer, like a super intellectual, but sick. And um, the cop ended up being played by Rod Steiger in the movie. I forget who played the killer. But 98% of this book was dialogue. And it's William Goldman, so it was great dialogue. And I couldn't believe it because, again, I'd been writing my whole life. So by the time I was read No Way to Treat a Lady, I was writing stories and you couldn't stop me. And, but it's just stuff to hand out, you know, hand out to friends and stuff. There wasn't any outlet for it. Uh, <clears throat> but one thing I didn't like when I read were these endless pages of description. And here was a book with almost no description at all. And I went nuts. And again, his William Goldman's sense of dialogue and how people talk and how he saw the world through his characters. I don't have serial killers and cops. But that dialogue got into my, his method of dialogue got into my DNA. 
So I just was always good at that. Um, I read a book and so I finally, I went on, I think I had to go on eBay to get a book that's out of print <laughs> that I must have read hundreds of times in my childhood called Mr. Roberts, which uh, was a book, a Broadway play and a movie with Henry Fonda. And I read that book hundreds and hundreds of times as a kid, but I don't know if you know, there's no reason for you to know the story, but it's about a, a, a Navy Lieutenant on a merchant ship in World War II. And all he wants to do is really be in the war, but he's on this merchant ship where the, the, the enemy is boredom. So you got all these testosterone guys fighting boredom, but this guy eventually, Mr. Roberts, eventually played by Henry Fonda was the ultimate leader. He was the ultimate team captain. He was the, you know, and his, and I guess I was reading all that. I, and his, his values got installed in me. I never lived up to being as good a person as Mr. Roberts was, but the, the writer's values and that character's values got installed in me. So I always read, and I think if there was a, a pattern, it was almost always contemporary stuff. I didn't, I didn't go back and do the, you know, Weathering Heights and, and I didn't go back and do, you know, I certainly I didn't read Tolstoy. I, I have no, I just, saying it this way sounds like bragging, it's not. I don't really have a background in literature. Most of what I read was contemporary fiction at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I tried to read Madame Bovary um, like we were supposed to in high school. And I know it was great and I should probably try it again, but the guy's gone for four pages about what a tree looks like. <laughs> and and um and movies you cut to the tree <laughs> there's a tree that's it and i just didn't have the patience so i think i, I think a lot of the impatience you know played played into like who i became you know i i like you know i'm that kind of person and if i go to a restaurant and i like it why why do we need to go to 10 other places we already know this place is good i happen to be married to somebody who thrives on variety <laughs> And it's a crazy place for us to be because we already did that. Let's do something else. And I already, I did, we already did that. It was great. So we know it's going to be great. So why don't we do, so I'm a creature of habit and she's an absolute not creature of habit. So um, we definitely need each other for that very reason. She, she, I bring her to the ground sometimes and she gets me off the ground sometimes, which is, that's a good relationship. Frustrating sometimes, you know, but, but it's good. You need a balance. <laughs> you, you know, you need it. If you know, everything in life is about balance and imbalance. When you think about it, everything in life is about balance. When things are good, they're in balance. That's it. And so when things are good, you, you should all look around and say, well, what's balanced about this? Mm -hmm. So that when they get bad, you can say what's out of balance out this, and then you have something to compare it to. But lately, I've, I told you there's a book I read. I, I look it over this way because that's where it is um, called Anxious People by ah. Frederick Bachman, uh, he's Swedish. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the funniest, but almost, but also this guy loves human beings. You know, he just loves human beings and he loves how screwed up we are and our, the irony and the, I don't wanna say hypocrisy, but just our ability to hold two different things. You know, doesn't make us hypocrites. It just means we have the, you know, sometimes you can hold two opposite things and they can both be true. Mm -hmm. but, but also how ridiculous we are. He, he gets how ridiculous we are, but he loves how ridiculous we are. So he's not making, you know, he's making fun of all of us, but in such an affectionate way. Mm -hmm. And also the plot is unbelievably well worked out. I'm reading that and um, I just finished Christina Baker Klein's Exiles. And now I'm going back in her history. I read a couple of her books. Now I'm reading A Piece of the World. And I'm reading Kristen Hanna, you know, again, what I like about Christina Baker Klein is not a single one of her books. Do you know her stuff? Yeah. yeah. The Exiles and Orphan Train. Orphan, Orphan Train, Train I've read. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. That's, um, and I, I read Orphan Train because I found out that I was going to be at a writer's conference that she was going to be at. Okay. And the way things work, we were in a, we were in a, a beach rental waiting to be able to move into our place. And Orphan Train happened to be a book that was on the shelf. No, it wasn't even Orphan Train. It was not one of her books. And Michelle said, look, she's going to be at your conference. And I figured I better read one of her books. So I don't know why I didn't read that one. Oh, it didn't belong to me. 
I got Orphan Train and read that. And when I look at her stuff, this is a writer because on, if I am in a bookstore and I see this cover, it's not material I'm interested in. It's not the kind of story I would want to read. It's not the, there's nothing about it that would make me read the book. It's nice to see all this praise, but I'd find another book that jumped out at me more with all that praise. So I've read like four books of hers that I never would have read about story material that I don't really care about going in. And from the first page, <laughs> she's got me, you know, from the first page and every one of these times, uh, she brings you in and again, as a craft, as a scientist of, of this craft to look and see how did she do that? How did she get me to care about stuff that I, I mean, I'm a caring person. It's just that we pick, you know, there's, look at all those books behind it, you know, you can only pick one at a time. So you're going to pick something you feel like a closer affinity. If you're into sports and there's a sports novel, you're going to pick that. If you're into sports and there's a novel about pig farming in Scotland, you're not really going to pick that. But then you read a novel about pig farming in Scotland and you're blown away. That's the writer. So I re I'm reading a lot of her now. And, and just to just to expand. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and my mother was a gigantic. My mother, I got my love of movies and reading from her. She was a gigantic reader. She always had four or five hardbacks going mm. and uh, she would come and visit. And, and uh, when she had to fly to see us because we moved across the country, she, she'd have a canvas tote bag filled with hardcovers. She was not a big woman. She was a little lady, she was like 5'2", and, and filled with hardcovers. And the other hand, I guess would have her overnight thing in it. But in her suitcase would be five or 10 paperbacks that she bought at the airport in case something you know, the hardcovers ran out or something. So, and I'm kind of that way too, in other ways that, you know, I'll get more than I needed. I'll get more than I need of something that I'm not even using so that I don't run out of the yeah. it's it's we're nuts but uh no I'm the same type of person you see the larger bookshelf behind me is full of books <laughs> I have not yeah. read the smaller bookshelf is oh, the one I've read because <laughs> I, I I'm like a book hoarder you just so I mean so many photographs of her with a book in her hand and, yeah. and she read and read and read and um was a very literate and articulate person she wasn't affected at all um I grew up in a way that nobody thought too much of themselves and, and if you did it was pretty swift that you've got your knees taken out from under you so she was a really kind humble nice um smart classy woman and and i gotta tell you movies movies and books were her thing she would watch movies late in the night and to be able to bring us around in a circle to be able to have a premiere of sleepless in new york and watch my mother um, trust me all of my disappointments I had them in context but my mother it drove her nuts and <laughs> she hurt for me so much I'm their third kid she worried about me so much I'd taken on something so big and who was I and it's the movie business and you know it's failure 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 she goes to New York and it's at the it's red carpet and there's spotlights and like she's standing there watching Madonna get turned away because there wasn't a seat and and this was her boy so and then there was a party after this it was incredible to to, to see my mother in this room with movie stars and she just was like it was a payback for all the grief I'd caused her I mean I was a good boy I didn't I, didn't, I wasn't anybody she was never worried that the police were going to call you know, um, I, I was home on time pretty much because I wanted to be home on time. I don't want to be out late at night. I never did. Uh, so to see her in that room was something that I was just so great and glad I could give her that. It was a gigantic Hollywood movie premiere. I didn't know it was going to be that big. Uh, and it was, it was a great night for me. It's going to sound crazy, but things happen you know if you go from today to a giant movie premiere you're going to walk around with your eyes like that but it was such a gradual progression it was a night at work so there are people in that room that you know this they're all high as hell on well now champagne but you know a movie that they you know they to see it in a big theater with a lot of people who are predisposed to like it anyway because it's the premiere you know their friends with people and all that stuff but um they were just in this glow and uh 
it was just so great to be able to deliver that. Oh, I forgot. So this will be not, it's going to sound named anything anyway. It's because it's my mother. Uh, I had written the, the movie script of the bell tower of, of, it was called the bell tower at the time, the movie script version. And it was out and Aiden Quinn had been looking at it and he wanted to play Goody. And so I didn't know this, but Aiden Quinn's at the premiere at the party. And I'm standing there in the Plaza Hotel and I'm talking to Aiden Quinn and he's telling me about this character and this part and how much he wants to do it. And I'm saying, oh, we got to find a director. Well, all that stuff, it's work, you know, and you can't sit there and go, I'm talking to Aiden Quinn. You know, you you can't, you can't bring that energy to it. That's what later on is for. <laughs> so my mom drifts over like it's a bar mitzvah or something and how you doing? And she's catching up. Hey, I'm, this is my mom. Aiden. We're talking and then she goes, you're Aiden Quinn. <laughs> it was so sweet. And again, you know, she's five one, five two. I just hugged her and brought her in. And, I, I, you know, we caused our parents so much trouble. And it was just so great to give a like that and, and pay it off. And, yeah. and certainly for me, uh, I was so overwhelmed. Again, it was, a, it was a work night. It was a business event. But it's a business event. And there's Tom Hanks and there's Meg Ryan and and I made sure to talk to Tom that night. And, and I didn't know when I was going to see him again. And, uh, and we had a wonderful conversation. And he sent me a note afterwards that I still have. And, and he was a great. So the, the payoffs are there. Uh, when I gave up the idea of a big giant movie premiere, and that's one of the themes of the book, when you give up the thing that you absolutely have to have, it tends to come. And there's that phrase we all heard years ago, if you love something, let it go. Uh, I, I like the funnier comebacks to that more than I like the actual saying. <laughs> but uh, um, it is true that the minute we let go of our clinging on something, it almost always comes to us. So as soon as you prove that you don't need it, you can have it. And uh, so it wasn't that I'd given up on movie premieres. I gave up on having that be the thing that had to happen. Mm. And there is something in the book about the difference between wanting something and having to have it. And, uh, you know, if, no, if there's maybe a hundred things that I'd say, if you only take one thing out of this book, but if they got readers got that difference in their cells and their DNA, the di difference between wanting something and having to have it and what that does to your life and how to get, we all want things, how to get the things you want without having to have them is, uh, if that's my contribution to the planet this time, you know, with Sleepless, I wanted to send a Valentine to the whole planet. And that really was my intention. I, you know, before I got the idea, it's I want to send a Valentine to this whole goddamn planet. Let's see if I can do it. You know, uh, this, what I hope for this is that if you got something from it and kind of looks like you did, I hope people get what you got, which is just maybe, you know, some reviewer, I might have been Kirkus, you know, called it thoughtful. And I thought, what a great word, you know. I mean, they called it a lot of really good things, but the word that just really went to my heart was thoughtful. So I want people to think, you know, um, I don't want to preach to anybody. There's definitely lots of different points of view in there, and you get to see the result of each point of view. Of if they took it this far and didn't change, that's where this leads. And everybody has to give something up. And everybody has to take something on. That's the rule of storytelling. The main character, to get what you want, you got to give something up and you got to take something on. And I just, I didn't have to tell these characters that. I just said, please help me get through this. You're going to see each other for the first time in 20 years. What's the conversation going to be about? Where's it going to take place? Where do you guys feel like doing this? And <laughs> we're back to that. Yeah. It's just to not have, I mean, they're in my head forever now, obviously. I, since I was 32 or 33 years old, I've had these characters inside and now you're going to go. And I, I, I hope they last with you as long as they do with me. And I, I hope they do for you what they've done for me because obviously they've helped me grow. Uh, learning the lessons that they had to learn has taught me those lessons. So if it was only a giant 32 year term paper for me, it's been worth it. <laughs> But I think also, yeah, I mean, there's a path, there's a pathway, there's a pathway through our suffering that we cause ourselves. 
Uh, there's suffering we don't cause ourselves. There's a pathway through that, but most of the suffering we have, and pain is pain. You know, you hurt your arm, that's pain. That's not suffering. The suffering, you know, I, again, I'm not a, a student of Buddhism. I'm not really a Buddhist, but I, I that, that philosophy really appeals to me. The way of life really appeals to me. The immediacy of it really appeals to me. I think if I just said I'm a Buddhist, I would start out as the shittiest Buddhist there is. So I'm not going to call myself an ist of anything. But um, their, their take on suffering, the Buddha's take on suffering was that it exists. It exists with everybody. There's a reason for it and there's a way through it. And um, believe it or not, without preaching or trying to get anybody to convert to anything, uh, that's what happens. Everybody's suffering. There's a way through it. And the ones that take it come, come out clean. So if there's a gift for the whole planet or a message for the whole planet here, it's, it's chill out and start to forgive. Jeff, thank you so much. You have written a beautiful book here. It is very thoughtful. I think that word is absolutely uh, apt in a review. Um, I have no doubt that many people will be going out to pick it up and enjoy it. And for folks listening, Attachments is out on May 11th. So make sure you grab that wherever you get your books. Um, yeah, thank you so much. It's been really an insightful conversation as well. Well, I hope we talk again, Beth. Well, that's it for this edition of Conversations with Unexpected Book Nerds. You can find Jeff on Instagram at JeffArch1 and on Twitter at EveryDog. Be sure to check out his new novel attachments out May 11th. I am Beth Mowbray, and you can find me on Instagram at B is for books. That's B period is for books. Also be sure to check out more great content right here at the Nerd Daily.